Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, just a quick reminder here at the top of the show about the Other People app. This podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. The app itself is free. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. The most recent 50 for free. And then if you want to get at the deep archives, if you want access to every single episode, Available at your fingertips anywhere you go. You just sign up for Other People Premium. It's a subscription service. You can sign up right there within the app itself. It costs 75 cents a month. You sign up for Other People Premium. You get everything. Every single episode, including my conversations with authors like George Saunders, Tom Parada, Curtis Sittenfeld, Emma Straub, Edwidge Dantica, Hilton Owls, Maggie Nelson, Noah Hawley, T.C. Boyle, Sheila Hetty, Scott McClanahan, Eric Larson, Jerry Stahl, Lauren Groff, Roxanne Gay, the list goes on. The Other People app. It's free. Other People Premium. It's almost free. Did I cover everything? All right, let's get started. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know? It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hi, right. folks. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me all alone with a microphone. This is you with a thousand-yard stare. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. Welcome to the Other People Show. This is the Other People Show. It's nice to have you here. My guest today is Cynthia Dupree Sweeney, author of the debut novel, The Nest, available now from Echo. Uh, perhaps you've heard of this book. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for the past several weeks. Not only uh, is it one of the biggest literary debuts of the year, it's one of the biggest books, period. And I had a really nice time talking with Cynthia. You'll hear that conversation in just a moment. Uh, I've had a really long day. It's about 11 o'clock at night here. And uh, have I mentioned that we're moving? I don't think I have. We're moving across town into a new house another move. This is the second time we've moved in a, a year and change. So uh, I'm excited about it on a certain level. And then on another deeper level, I'm dreading it for all the obvious reasons. Like moving is a pain in the ass. And uh, I go into a certain mode, I think, when uh, I have to do this. I, I get very focused. I make lists. I, 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 uh, 
I guess it's like a maniacal level of focus. I'm not satisfied until everything's done, everything's in order. I, uh, I become very efficient. And so today I have, uh, I've been on customer service calls for hours. And, uh, for those of you listening who have had this experience where you bit, you know, where you spend hours of your time on customer service calls with multiple companies, trying to uh, schedule services, cancel services, move services, have services rendered. You know what I'm talking about? That can be draining spiritually. I, I feel this urgent need to get things done. I'm talking to people who are trying to upsell me. I'm talking to people who don't know what they're talking about. I'm talking to people uh, who sometimes don't speak uh, very good English. They're, you know, I can't understand them. They can't understand me. I'm trying to schedule appointments. They're trying to upsell me. Uh, I'm telling them that I don't want to be upsold. But at the same time, I, you know, I want to get a deal. If there's like genuinely a deal to be had. All day long. Getting quotes writing things down, trying to be thorough. So, uh, finally, uh, this evening I was on the phone with the ADT, uh, home security company and I, I wasn't really on the phone with them. I was on hold interminably with the ADT home security company. And, uh, it's about five o'clock. I'm fried. I haven't, you know, I have, I've been doing this for hours and I'm in my kitchen I have my earbuds in. I'm on my computer, so I'm multitasking. I'm trying to get multiple things done at once. I'm listening to this hold music. And uh, then my dog, uh, Walter, walks into the room, and uh, he's hyperventilating, and he's bleeding from his ass. So uh, I think I tweeted about it. (laughs) Because that's what I do uh, when confronted with a medical emergency. Before doing anything... I immediately document the experience for my social media followers. And, uh, so I'm, I'm sitting there and what I, what I had meant to do was I had meant to finish, uh, the, you know, the customer service call with ADT and then I was going to come record this show. But then, you know, that got, uh, sidelined because my dog, uh, Walter was bleeding, uh, rectally. And so I, I load him into the car. I drive to the vet the entire time I'm driving to the vet across Los Angeles uh, I'm still on hold with ADT. And it, then I go into the vet's office. Uh, I I'm in the waiting room and then I'm in the actual uh, examination room with my dog, just the two of us still on hold. The vet tech comes in. I'm still on hold. I'm talking to her while the hold music is playing in my ears. Then the vet comes in, starts examining Walter, telling me that, you know, what she recommends. I start to worry that she's upselling me. Like, is the vet upselling me? Do vets do that? Do they, they try to sell you services you don't need in order to uh, increase profit margins? Does that happen? That probably happens. So, uh, long story short, Walter's okay. You know, he... Uh, what did we have to do? We, like the vet took a fecal sample. We're going to run a panel test for parasites. He has a cold. He got some uh, medications and then, uh, he had his, uh, anal, gra- uh, anal glands expressed <clears throat> because that's what happens. Uh, when you go to the vet as a dog, it's a very common thing. You get your anal gland expressed or your glands 
multiple glands. You get them expressed. It's always fascinated me, uh, the use of the word express in that context. That, 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 that's what they, you know, that's what was chosen somehow. You express an anal gland. Have I said this before? You can express uh, an opinion. You can express your feelings. And uh, you can express an anal gland in this life. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Cynthia Dupree Sweeney. Her debut novel, The Nest, is available now from Echo. Good time talking with her. Very excited uh, for you guys to hear this one. Here she is, folks. This is Cynthia Dupree Sweeney, and her book, one more time, is called The Nest. I think it's certainly the first impulse, and I get that. And I. It's not the first impulse with me. Uh, that's impressive. I'm not like when I hear, okay, so uh, a woman. And can we talk about age? I don't want to... Absolutely. Because I don't want to... I know sometimes people get touchy about that. I am not the least bit touchy about it. But I think this is part of what makes your story so great is that, you know, you're not the 24-year-old wonderkind who published this... Who wrote this novel in grad school and then went out and got a seven-figure advance. Right. You're a woman in her 50s. Mm -hmm. First novel. 55, yeah. Yeah. And you went out with this novel not expecting... Uh, certainly a seven-figure advance. <laughs> certainly not. And, certainly not. And then there was a bidding war, and it happened for you. And now the book mm-hmm. is a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's sort of what everybody dreams of, I think. I, I, I guess. I, I, um, I certainly never let myself think that big. And, and maybe part of it is that I did start writing fiction later in life. I felt like I was had so much ground to catch up that I just constantly felt in a place of catch up. So I never, ever thought, um, I, I, I really didn't have big fantasies of what might happen beyond maybe I'll get an agent and maybe that agent will be able to sell the book. And that was really the first fantasy was, I, I hope I can finish this book. Did you feel like the book was, was good as you, did you feel like you had something as you were writing it? Did you know what you had? Like, the, you know, this is something that's going to have uh, broad appeal. This is no, really, no, no. I, I, I didn't, I didn't think, of, I didn't think of uh, who the audience for the book would be at all, or, or I didn't, I didn't think in terms of the marketability of the book at all. I, I really just thought about 
finishing the book and making myself happy because I honestly thought, okay, maybe nothing happens with this book. Maybe this is the book that sits in the drawer. And so I should at least, I'm, I'm teaching myself how to write a novel. I might as well have fun while I'm doing it. You did pretty well. First but, time out. <laughs> but I mean, I do think there's some lesson to be learned there, which is I did not think about any, in fact, when I, when I finished the revision, when I finished the revised manuscript and I thought, okay, this is, this is good enough for me to start querying agents. I looked at it objectively from a marketing standpoint for the first time. And I just thought I am totally fucked. Like there's a literary agent. It takes place in New York. People live in Brooklyn. There's a fiction writer who can't write fiction. It's about the publishing world. Like I am, I am no one. It is, it is literally everything everyone tells you. If you read an article about what agents are looking for, all of those things are on the, we're not looking for this list. I think I have a counterintuitive take on that. And it's informed by books like yours, books like, uh, What's the Garth Risk Hallbrook? City on Fire? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. I think people like to see themselves reflected in fiction. I think, well, I can tell you now they do. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yes. But people who live in New York City like to see New York City in fiction. They like to see, you know, it's like it's fun to read about the place that you live and to read about it uh, fictionalized and brought to life in that way. Yeah. And to yeah. recognize figures and to recognize archetypes. And, right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I, uh, yeah. I think that that actually might help provided the execution is there. Right. If it's poorly executed, I think they're going to have a tendency to react even more negatively. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I, yes, I think you're absolutely right. If it's, if it's a manuscript that, you know, they feel isn't, um, where it should be and they're reading it and it has all those tropes that makes them doubly angry. Yeah. So, and I think another part of this that fascinates me, I was reading about it is, um, your agent, Henry Dunow, Mm -hmm. uh, took the book out and your book, um, just a quick like uh, synopsis is about uh, some siblings uh, squabbling essentially um, at a time in w- at which they're about to inherit some money, mm-hmm. and it's about family dynamics mm-hmm. and the ways in which um, you know we grow apart, we come back together, mm-hmm. the tensions that arise when we are in close contact mm-hmm. with our families. And Henry took the book out, which I thought was a very savvy move, right after Thanksgiving weekend. Right. Yeah, the Monday after Thanksgiving. So, and that was that was part of the strategy. That wasn't just like a you happy know, it accident. was it, it 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 was a little bit a happy accident in the sense that that was the timing. That's when we were working on it. I signed with him. I think at the end of September, I spent some time doing revisions for him. As we were reaching mid-November, he said to me, we either send it out the week after Thanksgiving or we have to wait until after the holiday, until January. And I didn't want to wait until January because I didn't want to keep fiddling with it. And so... Drive yourself nuts. Yeah. So <laughs> I I really worked hard to finish it Thanksgiving week. And when I, I handed it to him the Friday after Thanksgiving and he said, this is great because we'll be sending this to everyone just as they've come back from Thanksgiving uh, you know, with their families, with their extended families. And, um, I don't think either one of us understood how savvy that was, except in retrospect. See, I think you should be taking full credit for that. (laughs) I can't take any credit for it. It, It's, it's him. Well, but you know, when I, I just had this conversation yesterday and it's an iteration of a conversation that I've had repeatedly on this show and that I've had repeatedly in my life, which is how do books become successful in the marketplace? Right. And uh, I was saying, there's a, some an element of timing to it. There's always. time. There is there is alchemy involved, and 
now that I've been through the process, I have a greater appreciation for all the little bits and pieces and how everything has to line up long before that book hits the stores. Yeah. And, um, like, so talk to me, like, let's take, let's take, uh, listeners through the process, maybe uh, going back to when you, you got your agent. Okay. So you finished the manuscript and then you queried how many agents? I queried eight agents. And you wound up with Henry? Yes. And how, how quickly did all of that happen? Did you get a lot of interest? Yes. Uh, pretty much everyone who I queried asked for the manuscript. And I got an offer quickly. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and so the protocol in that situation... I was advised that the protocol in that situation is to let everyone who had the manuscript know that you've received an offer to give them an opportunity to probably read what they haven't gotten around to reading it and to see if they are interested. And I did, and everyone else passed except Henry. And uh, so I had the luxury of having conversations with two different agents, and uh, Henry and I just hit it off like gangbusters. That I, we were 15 minutes into the phone call, and I knew that it was the right fit. So. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty obvious. It was really, it was really obvious. Or at least, it, you know, one hopes that it's pretty yes. obvious. Yes, yeah. So that's a good sign right away. You yes. have an agent that you feel like gets you. And I think yes. it comes down to it's personal rapport, um, but it's also somebody who gets your book, which is um, what like creative synergy. Yes, he. I think it's. He he get he got me he got the book, but the way that he envisioned what the book could be was resonated with me. So that's sort of the conversation you have with anyone, including when it's out on submission and you're talking to editors. They're telling you what they envision happening to the book, and those. And what do you mean by that? Like like these are the changes we can make to yeah. make it better, or this is like, it's going to be a book that gets bought by. Uh, X publisher and then gets optioned by X, you know, movie. Produ- no, I or- mean, I mean, everyone, I, I feel that everyone says to you, we love this book. We think it's going to be really successful. And I think that's just part of the bullshit part of the conversation. Um, but when you are talking to editors, when the book's out in submission, they are, you're trying to suss out if you're going to work well together. So they're telling you what they think they the book needs. What, for what did them. Henry tell you he thought the book needed? Henry told me um, the the biggest the biggest thing he's a uh, piece of advice he gave me or the biggest piece of feedback he gave me was that he thought that the main character uh, well he's not the main character he thought that the oldest brother Leo whose bad behavior sort of puts the plot into motion uh, was not present enough on the page and he said to me he's he's not the main character. But he's the sun that all these planets orbit around, and he has to shine bright enough for us to believe that. And he was absolutely right. Mm. And so I added a lot of of Leo, and and took back some stuff that I had taken out. Oh, okay. So that was, I think, that was the major change. That was the thing that required a lot of rewriting and some new writing. I was going to say because, like, with a book like this. Um, that's done as well as it has it. I, it makes me wonder, like, how much did you edit both with your agent and then after the book had been acquired? And who acquired it at uh, Echo? Megan Lynch. Oh, okay. And um, you know, it was, I think, relatively speaking, not a lot. Um, you know, that was a big note, but it was a, but it was an accurate one, and it was also 
that resonated with me because I really struggled with how much Leo should be in the book. And there was a point during writing the first draft when I thought he was not going to be in the book that much, really not be on the page that much. And I sort of experimented with that and it wasn't really working. And so I think that what Henry was feeling was sort of my, um, you know, wobbliness about how he should be there, you know, there. Like, what, was, it, was it a thing where, in, you know, when you were thinking about maybe not having him in the book as much, that it was like his absence would make, like, like the reader would feel his absence and that it would be kind of like the, uh, an effect not dissimilar to like that, uh, what is it? Like the Gaetalese, like Frank Sinatra yeah, yeah, profile yeah, where it's like, yeah. he, he's sort of like the, the main point of the profile, but yeah. he's never yes. present. Yes. But it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't working that well. Yeah. Um, probably because I have too many characters. You can probably do that with a smaller group, but, um, and you know, Henry felt, and he was right that you really have to, you really, it, it has to be plausible that these younger siblings are enthralled to him. And so he has to be there to, to make that happen. Yeah. Um, but it's a, a great example of uh, an agent. And, you know, and agents tend to be creative collaborators uh, along with editors mm-hmm. making a crucial contribution. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, there, there, I, there are a bunch of examples. And the first one is even before I had an agent, I started the book at the end of the Bennington MFA program as my thesis and my thesis advisor was Brett Anthony Johnston. And, um, and in the, the first draft of the book, which I finished, you know, probably a year later in which he read, uh, cause he's a great guy and a good friend. Um, the character of B who's a fiction writer in this book was a poet. And the only reason I made her a poet was because I was in an MFA program and I thought I cannot, I cannot <laughs> show up with pages about a fiction writer who cannot write but fiction. You, but you know what? Like it was a, all, it was no a, rules. It, no, no, exactly. Rules. And it, and it was, a, you know, it was a dumb call and, and Brett called me on it immediately. Uh, the po- feeling the poetry thing was not going to work. And, uh, and then we just talked about ways maybe it could work. And, and I did all those things. And when he read the first draft, he said, um, it's still not working. She can't be a poet. And, and so I had to come up with another way to handle her writing career. And the minute I made her a fiction writer and came up with a conceit that I came up with, which is that she had had success very early on with these series of short stories about her brother. And, you know, and then he said, don't write about me anymore. And then she had trouble writing the whole, like the whole book came up and those chapters were the most fun to write. Hmm. And isn't it weird how like one like creative decision like that, like you kind of turn that key and suddenly everything goes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know that, yeah. And, and then Henry, uh, you know, there's lots of other little stuff he had me do, but things like I'm not physically seeing these people like just a little bit, you know, not a ton of physical description, but, um, maybe strengthening relationships between certain characters. And then, when Megan bought it, uh, she she didn't have she didn't have a whole lot that she wanted changed. Um, there are two That's minor. Why she bought it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? there are two minor characters in the book 
And uh, the the discussion always with everyone, with every agent I spoke to and with every editor I spoke to is, is this an ensemble piece or is this a piece about the Plum family and the secondary characters really have to be toned down? And I really, really wanted it to be an ensemble piece. And I sensed that that other people did not. And I heard it enough from enough people that I thought, okay, I, I don't have to change it, but I haven't gotten it right. And so... Like at, at, like at the level of um, modulation. Yes, exactly. And there, there was one character in particular that people really sort of wanted me not to entirely lose because it wasn't quite possible plot-wise, but really, really, really toned, you know, turned the volume down on. And, and I really didn't want to do that, but through talking with Megan, I figured out the, uh, what the solution needed to be. Mm. And it was getting rid of another character. And it was taking the secondary characters out of the epilogue completely mm. and having their stories end a little earlier and giving the book back to the Plum siblings for the to end. To the main, the main yeah. show. It's, it's funny, you know, like you think about making decisions editorially on a manuscript that you're working on, and obviously the author by far and away has the most intimate knowledge of it. Right. And so the buck should stop with the author. Right. And so when you're in that position and people are reading and reacting to your work and trying to give you creative um, feedback on it, the question, or you're like, let's say you're in an MFA program and you're mm-hmm. workshopping the book, the question becomes like, how, you know, uh, when do you know to take advice? Right. And uh, like one of the rules, like I kind of made for myself, is like you know if you hear the, the same note three times, yeah. Like once it's like a uh, difference of opinion. Right. Twice it's like well whatever. Three right. it's like maybe this yeah, is a trend. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Some, something's not exactly. working here. You know. And then I also always think um, sometimes before I even hand something off to people, I'm already defensive about. Uh, a point in the story, like I think, oh, well, the one thing I'm not going to do, and that's invariably what the thing someone comes back. So you know, like yeah. on some level, you know it's not working. And a lot of it, a lot of times too, like I'll find myself preemptively defending a point that I know if somebody pulls that thread, it's going to be a shitload of work for me. It, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And you're like, no, this is fine. It's good. Yeah. We're good, right? It's going to be fine. And then they're like, no. And then, you you know, you just have to go and kind of take it apart and put but it But it is, together. I mean, it is really rewarding when you're hearing the same thing from people and you think, okay, I've got a problem. And then you take a second look and you see a fix that you can live with. That's, that's cool. Yeah. No, like, it's cool too when you're like working on like a big long manuscript and you come in, you know, you come to a point where you're stuck or you come to a point where there's something that's not working and it can seem really overwhelming to have to take it apart. Yeah. But then if you spend time with it and especially if you have some good insightful editors or an agent or somebody who's really invested, um, a lot of times like from day to day, you know, one day you might think the thing is totally, uh, screwed and it's not fixable. And then the next day you see that solution. Yeah. It's a fun moment. Yeah. No, I found, the months that I was working on the manuscript, first with Henry and then with Megan, among the most satisfying work weeks of my life, you know, it was really, um, and part of that is just because you no longer are trying to figure it out by yourself. Right. Can somebody else help me with this thing? Please, please. <laughs> I mean, there's one scene in there that I really agonized over and one Sunday afternoon, I just kept emailing versions of it to Megan because we needed they wanted it to go send it out to, uh, for galleys on Monday. Uh-huh. And um, 
And, you know, all afternoon I just kept chipping away at it and chipping away at it. And, and, and she'd say, this, this is better, but I'm still, yeah, I'm not sure about this. And it's a really important scene in the book. And then when I finally got a version that I thought, okay, I think this is okay. And I got back from her. I think she just said, this is all better, you know? And so that, like, there's nothing better than that. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's take, uh, let's take listeners inside the moment where okay. this book, uh, goes out, uh, for sale mm-hmm. and then there's interest <laughs> and this like dream scenario unfolds. Like wh- describe it. Where were you? What happened, uh, um, biologically to you? <laughs> home. Um, it, it's it's a particularly surreal thing ha- having it doing it from Los Angeles because it's all happening in New York and it's and it's kind of happening out of your sight anyway unless you're living in New York and you decide you want to actually meet with all these people. Mm. Um, I was just talking on the phone with people and and then you know the negotiation part I- I'm really not privy to except what Henry chooses to tell me and and so that was. Harper Collins was very aggressive and they wanted to keep the book from going to auction and they did. And, and it happened very quickly. The book went out on Monday and it was sold to them on Thursday. Wow. And usually there's usually speed when things like this happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, um, I don't know. It was surreal. I'm not even sure I've ever processed that week. Did you, I mean, did you, jump up and down did you scream did you pass out <laughs> or was it I, more subdued it was much more subdued yeah. because it was kind of it was kind of scary i was gonna say it's like I, terrifying almost. no it was it was it, it wasn't almost terrifying it was it was completely terrifying and at one point i said to henry i feel like i'm on a runaway train and i want to pull the emergency brake <laughs> like can we stop it this is what massive success feels like people <laughs> and at another point he as he likes to remind me um, I, I had screwed up the time of a phone call and I was supposed to talk to an editor at what I thought was, was 11 o'clock my time. And I was up at Griffith park cause I hike up there a lot in the morning. And, uh, and Henry called and said, where are you? You know, so-and-so is trying to get a hold of you. And so I ended up talking to her in this very surreal moment, sitting at, on a bench near the observatory, listening to her pitch why. That you know. mountain lion walks past. <laughs> oh, if only. P, was it P-19? What's his <laughs> yeah, name? P-22. P-22, yeah. Um, and, and then I started hiking back down the hill, and Henry called me and said, I think we're going to close by the end of the day, and I think they're going to come back with seven figures. And I said to him, I, I'm going to throw up right w- now. While you were hiking? Yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> It's a very LA moment. It was a very LA moment, but also kind of a New York moment. In yeah, LA. yeah. That's wonderful. Um, so it was exciting, but it was also it, it it was scary, and I was aware that I was going to have a big target on my back, and the book was going to have a big target on its back, on its front, and um, <laughs> right, and, and so I didn't know what that I, I didn't know what that was going to bring. I don't know. I think I think it's it's pretty lame to be negative about somebody getting a break like that. I think mo- I got to believe I think most people are good. Most people they might be like, "Damn, I wish I had that happen for me," obviously. But yeah. at the same time they people cheer, right? 
I think some people, I think some people do. I think people who, I think people who understand the economics of it, um, and people who, you know, are writers and, you know, it's too bad that it's a news story, that it doesn't happen more often. Yeah. But, um, you know, I was shocked at how many people, people who write about books, people who you would think would know better, uh, you know, sort of wrote some version of, well, or I've seen some version of this article a lot. The problem with big advances is um, it prevents publishers from buying other people's books, which is completely inaccurate. And that might be true for a tiny independent publisher who has a really limited budget and has to figure out, like, you know, how are we doing it? That is not true for HarperCollins. Yeah, exactly. And and in fact, what Megan has said to me is how your bo- what's happening with your book right now is going to make it possible for us to take risks on more books by younger, newer, unknown, you know, the authors who we know are not with this manuscript going to make a lot of money, but now we have like some leeway to give them some support. Right. And so but that's provided that, you know, they, they acquire your book for this, um, big advance and then take it through editorial and then roll it out. And it does well. Yes. So yes. everything, all the dominoes everything fell. Is, and, but you know, everything in business is a, is a guess. You're, you're trying to figure out if, if something's a good investment or not. And sometimes it is. And sometimes it's not. Um, I am thrilled that because the book is doing so well, uh, Megan Lynch is going to acquire a lot of books by writers whose careers are going to benefit from her guidance and intelligence. Like that is thrilling to me. Um, I am thrilled that Henry's having this experience. I mean, he has some big authors and he's had some extremely successful books, but, um, he's, you know, he's having fun right now sure, and, yeah. and, and that's thrilling, you know, that, um, that the book is providing this experience for other people. But, um, you know, the people at HarperCollins who got behind the book really, really early on and worked so hard for it in the book on the book selling side. Okay. Let's, cause I want to talk to you about that. Uh, this is always a area of fascination for me when I have an author on this show who has had this experience with a bigger advance, um, which you would think like the the reason that you got the big advance in the first place is that when they had their editorial meeting, they passed the manuscript around Mm -hmm. to the marketing people. Everybody Mm -hmm. weighs in. I mean, this is the process of acquisition, right? It's not just Megan saying, I want it. It's like, you know, everybody sort of, there's a consensus that forms and it's, it's a rare consensus, right? which means that there's a lot of enthusiasm. The marketing people believe they can, they know how to sell it. Right. Okay. So, um, like, I guess you don't have anything to compare it to cause you never had that. You never had that debut novel that like sort of like rolled yeah. out and everyone was like, yeah. eh, you know, and so this is your only experience. I mean, I but- do, you know, I certainly have many writer friends who have said to me before the book even came out, like, Oh, things are not, like things are not looking good. They're not really behind the book. And I, and I didn't really understand oh, you mean what about that their books. meant about their books. Yeah. But you, with you, oh, they, no, were, not, they no. were behind it. And I didn't really understand what that meant. Like how you could divine that. Yeah. I thought they were just being super negative, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but now that I 
have been on the inside of it and I see what happens. Um, now, what happens when, when a, well, a, a publisher really gets Well, you know, this really is what I mean by book. alchemy. The, um, I, I'm not, I don't want to get his name or his title wrong, but um, Doug Jones at HarperCollins, who is maybe director of sales, I'm not sure, but he read it on submission and he fell in love with it. And he made this book his mission for the last year. And that means, because what has to happen is it has to be sold internally to all the sales reps Mm. who in turn have to sell it to all the booksellers. And that is a critical, hugely important part of the process. Like with store placement and stuff like that or store placement, just interest, like hand selling, um, you know, getting them to write those little cards and make it a staff pick, getting them to nominate it for the indie next list. Um, talking about it with their customers, um, you know, just all kinds of Getting stuff the like that. Getting the book's title tattooed or, on their own. Or, yeah. <laughs> or like, or the, or the person who's the Barnes and Noble rep working that relationship and the person who's the Amazon rep. Like, so all of this stuff goes on internally that the author has no part in and is really about the internal enthusiasm for the book. And they obviously have a million titles to sell. So, so everyone's attention, you know, they're, they're, they're attending to a lot of different things. Um, but they really, really, Doug sold the book within HarperCollins with such enthusiasm that everyone got excited about it. Hmm. And I think that made all the difference in the world. Okay. That's a good answer. That's a substantive answer because there's so much mystery around why certain books take off. Yeah. If that happens, that's a sign that things could go well. Yeah. I'm speaking to my listeners. Yes. No, it's true. <laughs> so it's that. And then um, your book got optioned by uh, Amazon yes. Films. Yes. Okay. So what's happening with that? Because this, this book uh, strikes me as a you know one that could be adapted. Were you thinking of that when you were writing it? Like no. The, no. Um, well, we're, you know, we're in contract negotiations <laughs> right now. Oh, you are? Um, which it, there's not really much negotiating going on. It's just that they dumped this enormous contract and I just got the comments from the lawyer and I don't understand any of it. So I just have to sit down with her and say, explain all this to me. Yeah. Um, but Jill Soloway is going to produce. She is. Yes. Okay. And so, and there's a little bit of kismet here because you and Jill had been years before Jill Soloway mm-hmm. was like Jill Soloway. Right. You guys knew each other from a creative forum online. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Okay. So then you get this book deal. Like mm-hmm. how, did, how did the whole, well, she said, um, I mean, she's a good friend. Uh, we talk all the time. Um, she, she, I'm trying to think of how it happened. I, most of the interest that I was getting was for a television series. And I felt uh, n- not sure I wanted to do that. And Why not? because I didn't want to give up control of the story. Yeah. Like, well, cause it's got to keep going. It's got to keep going. Yeah. I took one meeting um, very early on. And it was before I even finished the revisions for Megan. And, you know, I have this new film TV agent. She's like, I just think you should meet with a couple of people just to see what it's like. And, and I said, all right. And, and I was in this meeting and these women were lovely, but all they wanted to talk about, like, okay, this book is season one. What's going to happen in season two or three? Yeah. And it was such a mind fuck. You're like, listen, you know, you realize what no. I did to get this on also, paper? I haven't even finished like the, I haven't even finished my revisions. So I called my agent and said, you know what? I can't do this. I, I want to bring the book out in the world as a book. And so I don't want to talk about this until we're near or after publication. 
And and so around publication time, she started bringing people to me who were interested. I don't understand this world. The names didn't mean anything to me. And I think I sent them to Jill and said, can you help me out here? I don't, you know, do you know these people? And <laughs> should I meet with any of them? Or And that's when she and I started talking and she said, I can't option it as a series because it's too similar to Transparent. But if you're interested in a feature film, I would be interested in producing, but you would have to adapt the screenplay. That's not, that's not bad. It's not bad. For but somebody I, who wants but control I, of her story. I am... Um, I hadn't thought about that. And so I said, I have to think about that. And um, I, I was a little reluctant. And she she and her producing partner and um, someone from Amazon Feature Films met with me. And they were so lovely and persuasive and uh, got me really excited about doing it. So Okay. So you're, you're in the process of adaptation? I haven't started yet because okay. we haven't signed the contract yet. Oh, right. <laughs> you're, you're up to your ears in like legalese. Yeah. Um, so here's a question regarding the success of the book. Does getting a film option in this new media landscape mm-hmm. that we exist in now, does getting a film option from Amazon Films help your book in the Amazon marketplace? Like, does, I, you know what I'm saying? I, if Amazon do, is- I don't know, but I don't think so because I think that the film and TV div- divisions are out here, and I think they are very separate from the book division. Huh. And I and I don't That's a lost opportunity, think. I think. I agree. Um, Let's get Jeff Bezos on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is my completely uninformed take. Yeah. Um, my book is doing better. It does much better at Barnes and Noble and in the Indies and other places than it does on Amazon. But I huh. think that's just because the shopping experience on Amazon is so fractured. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's a million it's it's like buying, you know, I, I don't know, a car, a detergent, yeah. and a book. So I, I, which is how I usually yeah. <laughs> buy my cars, my detergent, and my books. Yeah. Actually. So, um, so I, you know, I have no way to, I have no way to quantify that. Yeah. It's interesting. It just seems because, especially with something as monolithic as Amazon, where yeah. they have like a film studio and TV and yeah. book and this, you know, mega mall or whatever, you would think they would be able to, you know, they they acquire a book, they'd be able to like constantly have that. Yeah, book, book I mean, jacket cover I, in front I mean, of people. I, I would say that um, that Amazon was behind the book early on. Before I sold the film rights, mm-hmm. they made it a you know I don't know a pick in March. They wrote something really lovely about it. What's that? What's it? Doug uh, Stone. What was his name? The sales guy at Harper. Uh, Doug Jones. Doug Jones. Did Doug Jones? Maybe Doug Jones. That's the work. Maybe of him. I don't know. Um, but um, Sarah Nelson at Amazon was really loved the book and was they did a not a, a lot of really nice things for it. Um, but I, I you know I don't I don't know how I don't know how to quantify that. Yeah. I mean, at some point, just let it happen. It's all happening. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I I don't. I don't ever check my Amazon. I don't ever go on. I don't ever check my Amazon. Number. You read reviews? No, no, never. Never. I did, and then I stopped then very quickly. <laughs> yeah, quickly very learned. quickly understood that I was a much healthier person. Yes. When I wasn't reading, I don't read anything about the book. Hmm. So okay, so let's let's uh, shift to talking about you. Okay. Uh, where are you from? Well. I grew up in Rochester, New York, but I moved to New York City when I was, you know, two weeks after I graduated from college and lived there until we moved out here in 2009, so. Okay. 
So uh, L.A., New York, big difference. Which one? <laughs> yeah. No, it's a huge difference, but I like them both. You like them both? I do. I, li- I really like it here. Okay. Um, I like to hear that. Yeah. I'm proud I of know. I felt like when we first moved out here, uh, you know, you'd meet someone at a party and say that you just moved out from you just come from New York and I, I felt like they'd like brace themselves, you know, you could feel like a, like they were waiting to take a body blow. Yeah. And then when I, when I, they'd say like, oh, how do you like it? And I'd say, Oh, I love it. And there'd just be this huge sigh of relief. Like, yeah. Oh great. We're not going to have to hear about how shitty our bagels are or something like right, that. Right. Yeah. Right. Or just like you get into like the having to like litigate it or defend it or, you know, that no, just- it's crazy. And I really, um, have taken to, defending LA perhaps sometimes a little too uh, enthusiastically when I'm back in New York. Because it's not that bad. Are, and I love New no, York too. I love New York too. They're well, both great. This is, this is the conversation I keep having with people. It's not either or. Yeah. You can love, open up your heart. Yeah. Love both places. <laughs> right. like, like too bad for you that you only have room in your heart for one city. Yeah. I'm so lucky because I have room in my heart for two cities. You contain multitudes. Yeah. <laughs> for God's sakes. Um, okay, so you spent, but you spent your formative adult years in New York City. Yes. Did you always want to write books? Was I mean, because like you came to this later in life than a yeah, lot of people. Yeah, I, um, I did want to write books, but it wasn't, you know, I grew up in a very middle class suburban, I know from listening to the show, probably much uh, like you did, yeah. suburban Rochester, very Midwestern, very, has much more in common with the Midwest than it does in New York State. Um and, you know, you went to college to get a job. Like, that was the whole point of college, was that you would then be able to get a job and support yourself. My entire point of going to college was to get to New York City. So You knew you wanted to go there? Yes, okay. like from the time I was 11. Because? I just loved it. You, just, you had visited. And- we had visited, and I was like, this, this place, this is where I was supposed to be born. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> and... Um, and so I took a job in corporate communications. And and so then then all of a sudden, magically, you're on that path. Like you're in marketing. You're a corporate communications writer. And it was fine for a while. Um, I really, really hated corporate life, like to a extreme degree. And it's what, hard. Ugh, it's hard it's to terrible. find happiness in that system. It's terrible. Um, but, you know, when I was around 27, I just deci- I thought, well, this is not working out for me. I'm just going to quit my job and become a waitress and be a writer. Mm. And that was literally the extent of my plan. And That's the extent of a lot of people's plans. Yeah. Well, it didn't work out, <laughs> needless to say. Yeah. Um, and I, for a really long time... I attached a lot of shame to that failure. And I like, think... How, like, describe the failure. Not to drag you through no, I, memories, um, but like, did you write a book that didn't work? No. no. I didn't... I, I basically didn't write. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote a little bit. I read all the time. And I tried to write. But I would disappoint myself on such a regular basis and so massively that I couldn't keep going. Meaning you would reread what you had written and just be it's like... It's just like terrible. Yeah. Um, it's painful to suck and you have to suck in order... You have to suck. Yeah. But the other thing was, you know, this was 1987, 1988. 
it was also really hard to find community. You know, I took classes, I'd go to readings. I thought somehow magically I would just plug into the New York literary community and I'm here. Find fr- yeah, exactly. Hey, you guys, I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> Exciting, right? Just quit my job. Yeah. <laughs> Let's suffer together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so I just gradually, what, what happened was I started freelancing for former clients and within a couple of years, I realized that I didn't mind freelancing. I didn't mind writing marketing stuff and um, you know managing projects if I didn't have to go into the office, if I could do it from home. So I like over a number of years, I just completely stopped talking about or writing about this dramatic thing I had done, quit my job so I could write a book. And I just changed the narrative, which was... You know, I'm not really a fiction writer. I gave it a try. It's not for me, mm. but I'm really happy freelancing. Yeah. And, but truthfully, I was really embarrassed. And how long did it take you to get to that? Were to you, get to embarrassed? No, to where? To where you were like, oh, that's how I actually feel. Or did you twenty always, years? 20, <laughs> okay. No, seriously. Yeah. Like I think it was. It was something that I couldn't even think of. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I've only started thinking about it in a more generous way in the last couple of months because I've had to talk about it. Mm. And I actually, I, 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 I had to sit myself down and say, okay, you have to be able to talk about this. Like, like <laughs> let's think it through. Right. What happened there? Yeah. And, um, and, and now I know that I was just young. Yeah. And and I didn't have a community, and I didn't have a plan. I mean, I really went about it half-assed. Well, and you never had really apprenticed. Like no, the, you know, yeah. it's not like you had six novels in the drawer. Exactly. When you quit your job, exactly. You quit your job, no. and you're like I'm going to do this. And I should have. And you know, the ironic thing is, I'm married to someone who did it the right way. Is he? And, no, he's a novelist. No, he's a he's um he's the head writer at Conan O'Brien. Okay. But he was an attorney when when we met. He had just quit his job as an attorney to do stand-up full-time. And, and I was uh, thinking that that's what I was going to do to write full-time. And, and probably part of me was like, oh, if he can do it, I can do it too. But he had spent two years doing stand-up every night while he was an attorney. And probably saving some money. Saving money <laughs> and figuring out, well, he, he quit the minute... He had spent like for six months in a row, he'd made enough money to cover his rent. And he was like, okay, now I can quit the lawyer job. This is a practical man. He's a man with good sense. Yes. Yes. So, um, so I just, would he mentor me? Yes. (laughs) He's, he's a very good, generous person. Um, so, you know, it just, um, and I mean, then, you know, and then we got married and then I had kids and then it just wasn't an issue. And 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 truthfully, the freelance work I was doing was great uh, for that time when I wanted flexibility. He was working at Conan. He had zero flexibility. They were terrible, long, miserable hours. Um, I was basically a single mom from Monday to Friday. And, and so it was great for me to have a job, to be able to stay in the workforce and, and be engaged, but also be, be, at home. be the full-time parent sure. or, the, or the most full-time parent. Um, and then my kids got older and more independent and I started to feel like I don't want to do that. Like I have to, this work has to become more interesting and challenging to me. So I have to figure out what I really want to do. And what kind of freelance stuff were you doing? I was doing? Like doing marketing, branding, okay. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
website copy, brochures, sure. taglines, all that stuff. Right. Um, and I... I, I had a friend, I was started writing personal essays because I was still like fiction was still like some red hot ember of shame that I could not touch. Yeah. And I wrote an essay and showed it to uh, a friend who had like was maybe two years out of the Columbia MFA program. And she said, I think you should write this as a short story. And, and I said, oh, I can't. I don't write fiction. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, I don't, I don't. She's like... What do you, I don't even understand what you're saying. Like, what do you mean you don't write fiction? You just put it in the third person. <laughs> like, and her, she was so dismissive of my comment and so matter of fact, and and so Confident. that I got embarrassed about that. Yeah, and she's like, I don't like. I've known you for a long time. I've read a lot of things you've written. Uh, you can do this, and. And so that kind of allowed snapped, snapped me you out of to, it. yeah, but it's still, I, I still approached very gingerly and then we moved out here and I was very lonely. Yeah. It's <laughs> a perfect recipe. See what happens when you move to Los Angeles, people? You're isolated. Yeah. Um, and so I started taking classes at the UCLA, UCLA Writers Extension and within a year I had applied to Bennington okay. to do the MFA program and that. And that it was, gave you some structure. It gave me structure. It gave me a community. It gave, it gave you deadlines. me deadlines. I I really knew that if I wanted to do it, I had to um, develop a writing habit. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 it helped with that. And um, yeah, no, that experience was pretty life changing for me. But the difference between deciding to do it at forty eight and twenty eight was that I. I thought, oh, okay, that like you, there has to be a plan around this. There has to be, it doesn't have to be an MFA, but it has to be something. Yeah. Um, or it's going to take you a really, really long time. Yeah. You know, just sitting in your office by yourself trying to figure out why your short stories suck is going to take a really long time. <laughs> there are people who can help. People can tell you. <laughs> yes, you exactly. They get paid to do that. Yeah. Um, that's incredible. And it just goes to show you that everybody's on their own clock creatively. There's no, yeah. there's no like, oh, you cross a certain age and you're done. Right. Like those are really self-defeating right. beliefs. And like, right. there's always, I mean, there, there's not always time you can get sick and die. Well, but, exactly. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in a person's life, uh, these sorts of stories are useful to remember. Like, did you have any examples of artists who, you know, were you looking to people who had maybe published later in life or did you not even need that? You were just like at that point, at some point you just dove in and, you know, I think I, I did a little bit, but I truly believe that one of the things that helped me is that because my husband's in the entertainment business and a lot of our friends are, and, and this is much more true here in Los Angeles than it is in New York. Yeah. People, it's the business here. Yeah. People are starting, people are at this, the starting line over and over and over again all the time. Yep. It doesn't matter how successful you are. Your show gets canceled. You are back that next Monday you are at the zero mark. And I think it was just, I, I really do believe that moving out here was um, very inspiring for me in that way and really helpful because I just saw everyone around me, you know, unbelievably creative, talented, smart people not being precious about things that failed or that weren't working. 
and just getting right back to work. Yeah. And I just thought, okay, well, I, 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 I can do that. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, in, in, in New York city, it feels like the firmament's a little more set. And certainly by the time you're in your forties, it's like, you've made your choices and you know, that clubhouse is not Open. accepting new members. Right. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now there's something like, uh, evergreen about LA, which can be both good and bad. Yes. Yeah. You would think that like, you know, as you accrue some successes that it would mean more, but you're only kind of as good as your last, yeah. as, as your last yeah. uh, movie or TV show. But or... I mean, there's something incredibly moving and inspiring to me about watching my friends who are television writers, um, specifically, but also performers just like, oh, well, that show got canceled, but uh, okay. So, um, now I have an opportunity to go dig up that pilot that I really loved and no one wanted last time around and let me see if I can figure out how to change that. I mean, it's, it's, um, I really do think that there's a certain preciousness that can go around literary fiction and, and it's, and it maybe it needs to be a little more about industry or not. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated, of course, because there's a financial aspect to it and everyone has to make money to live. Yeah. So, um, yeah, these people who are like dusting themselves off are like millionaires. Or yeah. Or not even millionaires, but, they're um, well uh, yeah, or, or, but they're not, they're not going to take 10 years to write that next pilot and then cross their fingers and hope it sells. I was just going to say the other thing so, about writing for TV is yeah. that you can write a pilot and I mean, you could write a pilot and two to four weeks if you really have. Yeah. To. Yeah. So and I'm not, I'm not trying to draw a parallel between, um, writing a novel, which can devour years of your life and have very little payoff and can pretend your, like it can devour your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And pretend that like that's, you know, no one should feel precious about that. That's, um, that's misstating what I'm thinking, but it's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah. It's I think what I'm saying is that, um, there are so many barriers that we put up that we just put up. And some of them are real, are real and need real solutions like money. And, and some of them are just in our heads. So, uh, yeah. And it's also, there's just something at a fundamental level, inspiring and energy giving about being around creative people who are doing creative work and in a resilient, consistent, persistent manner. Right. You know, right. and just like having that and being, and feeling a, a sense of human connection to yes. them. Yes. Yeah. Talking to them. Yeah. Like it's yeah. the, you just kind of gets you going. Yes. I feel that with people, um, you know, writer friends of mine who I'm like, uh, text buddies with. Yeah. And like, yes, we exactly. We complain to each other, exactly. but it's like, okay, they're doing it. Yeah. And it's not even competitive. It's just, okay, they're doing it. Right. Like, right. What a, quit complaining, right. sit down, right. do your work, right. get your 300 shitty words. And- it makes you feel, um, you know, kind of lame for not even trying. Yeah. Like, like, like if you're trying, that's a whole nother thing. But if you're not even trying. Yeah. That, quit feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah. That or quit telling yourself. Yeah. Or quit telling yourself it's impossible or that you, I, I don't know, just try. Mm. And that's how I felt about going to Bennington. I just thought, okay, at the end of two years, I am going to know if I really want to do this. Um, or if it's just too hard for me or not what I want, but, but I'll be so much smarter about books and writing and that will be a great thing. And it's an education. Itself. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and really with MFAs, I think it's kind of what you make of it. It's like what you yeah, make totally. of the time. And doing it when you're older. I mean, that just felt like, uh, you know, I was giddy about that. Right. And did you, were you in class with people who were like 
24 and oh, anno- yeah. annoying? Yeah, or? but no, all different ages, but all different, you know, because that's just kind of the what a low-res program is set up for people who have lives. Right. Uh, you know, they have kids, they have other jobs. So um, it was a wide range of ages, and that was also kind of cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about mommy. Okay. Because, I mean, that's a part of the publication story mm-hmm. of The Nest. It's mm-hmm. a, a part of the plot mm-hmm. of The Nest. And I'm interested in why it became a concern of yours as a fiction writer. You know, what, what you, you, have, you were raised middle class in Rochester. Um, I, you know, I'm assuming you, you guys do fine if your husband's mm-hmm. the head writer yes. on Conan. Mm-hmm. So, like, you have some awareness of mm-hmm. the disparities uh, that can yes. happen class-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that like, what was it that fed you? You're not like, lined up to inherit a huge I, trust. No, I am certainly, an, <laughs> I certainly am not. Um, um, I think it wasn't the money; it was how public it was. I most people's salaries are not like a, a publisher's weekly story, right? And I knew when I saw that story that I wasn't going to get out from under that. Um, and I have always been a really private person and having to talk about it was just really uncomfortable. And I felt really exposed and vulnerable after the publication deal. Yes. But what about, what about like sitting down to write the book? Why was it on your mind? Oh, it wasn't on my mind when I was writing the book. It wasn't. Like no, just this this idea of money and what it does to people. Oh, that well, because I lived in New York City for twenty seven years, and you saw. I I I mean I, you know that was the first place that I encountered real wealth, like fam- family money, inherited wealth. Mm. I didn't think that. I thought that was pretend. Um, Which just wasn't. I, I had a similar experience in college, where I was confronted with that for the first time in a serious way, and prior to that. Just wasn't in my, my, right, my brain right, at all. Right. And and so I think the first time you see that, it's I mean, I just remember um I remember when my obsession with it started, we had a kid and we desperately wanted to stay in New York City and we um were lucky enough to get into a Mitchell Llama housing program, which meant that we got you know, a kind of shitty apartment in a fantastic neighborhood in the far west village at a very, very low rate because they were subsidized. And you, as long as you made within a certain amount of money that was deemed middle income, you could do it. And we'd been on this list and we got it and it was just like the greatest miracle of our lives. Yeah. And But it became clear um, pretty early on that we probably couldn't stay there for a super long time. It was 800, like it was like 825 square feet. Ugh. It was up three flights of stairs. No, yeah. Um, we wanted another kid. Our downstairs neighbor was a nightmare. Every time our son ran, you know, two steps, he was banging on the... It, it was just... It wasn't tenable for the long term. And so I started thinking about, well, now what? You know, I don't want to move to the suburbs. And at the same time, I was meeting other parents and making friends with them and going over to playdates in their, like, 3,000-square-foot lofts mm-hmm. and these enormous apartments. And I'm just thinking, okay, I'm a smart person. I'm a smart person. That jo- those two jobs don't equal this. Right. What's happening? And housing. Yeah, housing. Housing is, in a big city like LA or yeah. New York is the whole shooting. And that was it. And I was just, I, I became obsessed with trying to figure out how all of my friends had spacious, beautiful apartments. 
given their jobs. And I just thought, are we like, were they saving money from the minute they got out of college? <laughs> They're like, amazing are we investors. The, are we the, and then, you know, as you become a little closer to people and they're willing to start to talk about their lives a little more, it's, oh, well, you know, mom and dad gave us the down payment and they helped us when the apartment next door opened up. And then we put those two in it, you know, and I just was like, oh, wow, we are so like, we are, we're so fucked. Yeah. There's you know? two, it's like there's two worlds. Yeah. That's what it feels like yeah. to me sometimes. It's like, oh, there's there's the world for people of that level of good fortune, and then there's the other world. And um, it comes to, I talk about this all the time on the show, so, or sometimes on the show about like schooling, because that's what we're up against no, right and, now. And, it, and, it's, and it's only gotten worse. Yeah. Um, my kids are 19 and 21, and it's a million times worse than it was then. And that was also feeding into all of my anxiety. How do we stay in the city? Where do we send them to school? Mm. Um. And then, you know, my husband became the head writer and all of a sudden we had enough money to do all those things. And, and I, 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 I was grateful. I was, I, I, I was to say I was, I was literally have been grateful every day of my life when that happened, when we were able to stay in the city and raise our kids in Brooklyn, I, there wasn't a single day that went by that I didn't think like, how did we get so lucky? Like, how do we get so lucky? But that also comes with sadness because it's not, it should not be accessible to you by money. And, you know, the school thing is something I, it, it takes approximately two seconds to get me into a froth. Yeah, me too. It, it's, it's, okay, but let me let, I it's like, s- like it's unethical. Our entire school system yes. has, is completely unethical. Okay. And so I'm, I'm right there with you. My daughter is, is, um, five going on six and then we have a, so you're right. Th- yeah. You're right, right there. there. Our son is nine months old and we just went through this whole rigmarole trying to get our daughter into school, which we can. Okay. Ba- so first of all, that sentence unacceptable. Yeah. It's, a, it's <laughs> like, she's five. Yes. We, and we went through it with preschool. Yes. And, um, I, I can sort of like find myself being like, I can't believe I'm having to do this this early. Like I can see like college, right, you know, right. college, uh, application process being a little bit nerve wracking or how do we do tuition for right. uh, some, you know, fancy private school if she gets in or something, right. but that, that I can sort of wrap my head around. I wasn't maybe expecting to have to do it this early. Right. And yet as a parent, um, uh, like all you want is to make sure your kids are getting a good education. <laughs> yes. And then there's like this social thing that happens where like all your other friends with kids are doing it. And you're like, well, I don't want my yes. kid to be the kid who's not going yes. to the-. And so then you get sucked into the system and then you become complicit in it. Yeah. And it's like, yes. I think in my heart, I want a public school system that serves uh, all children, regardless of how fortunate their parents happen to be. Right. Um, but it's like, how do, how do we do that? I want to abolish private schools. I do too. As as someone who sent her children to private and school. That's what I'm doing. I I but seriously, like I will join whatever movement you start to abolish pu- private I'm school. I'm starting it right here in my garage. Okay. <laughs> With, uh, it's it's going to be like togetherness. Did you ever watch that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I but I just I find I find the system, I feel I will always have guilt about participating in it, but it's just what you said. Like when my son, um, my older son was, um, really kind of a shy kid. He was one of those kids who I just knew would be lost in a big situation. It's like my daughter. And we looked at the public school 
and you know it was loud and crowded and i i could see that the that i could see that the kids who were getting attention in the classroom were the big mouths and and we went to the private school and there's like quiet time in the library and i just like burst into tears and i was like i want matthew to have quiet time I, in the library i, mean, I can't it's so and, and it's also like nicer facilities yes. you're like oh like oh like oh, this is what i want for her to have yeah and you know it's very know. it's very but uh, the, but just the fact that that's like those are the it's so polarized like that in cities like here and in new york and is we should say too yeah i think it's important to say cuz i'm from indiana went to public school great public school oh no my friends who live in other parts of the country don't deal with this, don't deal with this. right it's like what do you mean it's we're, they're going to the neighborhood great public school they walk so i yeah i don't understand why that can't exist in big cities. Well, um, if, there, if there were no such thing as private schools and all the rich people had to send their yeah. kids to public schools, the public schools would magically be amazing. Yes, that's right. And, and, and that does happen in certain neighborhoods and it happened where we lived in Park Slope, but, but then the, then the housing prices rise. So still the only people who have access to that neighborhood public school have to pay an inordinate amount of money yeah. for the space they're getting. And it's, so it still functions as a de facto filtering thing. And I, I, you know, every once in a while, the New York times will do an article, um, you know, wealthy New York parents who have chosen to send their kids to private school. And I just think this is, this is not you mean public, or? I mean, public school. And, yeah. and, you know, they're talking about how, all, all the wonderful experiences their kids have in public school. And I'm like, you are living in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in New York city. Like right. don't, pretend that your child is suffering yeah and or that, like there's some you know there's some great um leap that you're making right culturally right and the problem is you don't become aware of all of this until it's time for your kid to go to school right. and so for you to be the person who's going to be like well it's only going to turn around if we all go to public schools so my kid sorry matt yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's tough it's tough but it's a it's an f system and eventually something you know, something's got to change but it sounds like these are the kinds of things that were maybe part of the stew that wound yes. up in your book yes you know yes, thinking definitely, about this definitely stuff. and it's and you know uh, not to completely uh, get off track, but it's like, it feels like this is part of the national conversation increasingly. Yes. Like this is a growing Because thing. it's becoming increasingly, you know, um, uh, that polarization is becoming increasingly more dramatic, like with, with, with every passing year. And it's alarming. Well, I always say like when it comes to inheritance, just to try to tie this back very artfully mm -hmm. uh, to your book. But when it comes to the issues of inheritance, and they always call it the death tax. Right. They call it the, uh, what's the other word? The inheritance tax, the wealth yeah, tax, whatever I think it, it is. I think, it's the, I think it's an inheritance. The estate tax. Uh, yes. That's what yes, it is. Yes. And I, have this, I read this uh, essay by somebody whose name is going to escape me, but he's like a famous Princeton philosopher. And he had a very cogent argument why there should be an estate tax. And it, it's always struck me as being very true. People who rail against there being a tax on inherited wealth... Um, don't realize that you can't tax a dead person. The person whose money it is is dead. Right. The, per the people that you're taxing are the inheritors right. who did nothing to earn the exactly. money and are just lucky exactly. to have it. So exactly. that always it's like that. Yeah. That's like the, the simplest explanation for why there should be one. And then if you don't have one, and by the way, um, I will I will modify my position to say like, you know, I'm talking about obscene. Wealth. Oh, of course, if, of if course. Parents who have like over their life saved up yes. like a million and a half dollars yeah. and want to like distribute it among their three kids. Yes. Like I don't have a problem with yeah. that. But if it's like, 
you know, $180 million. Well, I, you know, I knew people and what fascinated me, I knew people who really didn't need to work. They had a, you know, a trust fund that supported them in spectacular fashion. Right. And that's great work I if was, you can get it. <laughs> yeah, but you know, well, okay. it was interesting. It was interesting yeah. when you when um, your source of income is not connected to anything you are doing, to any effort you are expend, expending. It's it's uh, it can be really fraught, yeah. and it and it makes your relationship. I think with your parents, if they're still alive, fraud and and it's it, I mean it's a it's a weird thing to have to deal with, and I have seen people deal with it spectacularly, beautifully, and graciously, and and you know use um, all their powers for good, right? And Me and too. people who really ha- have not. Yeah. So that's that's the thing is that like money isn't inherently evil or inherently good. Yeah. It's like sort of like technology. It's yeah. kind of like what you do with it yeah. and the values that you have. Um, but it's always interesting. But it's always interesting, <laughs> and it, I think it is the root of all evil in some ways. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. A, like It's always the problem. Yeah. If there's a problem, money's involved. If you scratch, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I'm really happy for you. Thank there's you. There's not an ounce of envy in me. I'm glad to see Thank you. somebody. I'm looking at you right in your eyes, and I can see that that's true. Yeah, no, it's like I like to see. I know how hard this is, and I like I like when the system works and someone gets a good break. So congratulations on that. Uh, And we will look forward to uh, the movie. Yes. Once you get that fucking screenplay done. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm I'm assuming there might be another book at some point. I hope so. Yeah. Okay. And are you beginning on that? I I started one at the end of last year. I've been a little busy, a little derailed. Yeah. But I hope to get back to it very soon. Well, best of luck. Thank you. All right, guys, Cynthia Dupree Sweeney, her novel is called the nest available now. From Echo. You can find uh, Cynthia online at Cynthia-Sweeney.com. She's on Twitter at Cynthia D. Sweeney. She's also on the Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the theme song music, the opening transitional music. Thank you to uh, Karen Souza for this uh, lovely uh, edition of Radiohead's Creep. Don't forget about the app. Get the Other People app. The Other People app. Available now for free. Sign up for premium. That's not free. Good way to support the show. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. So I was... uh, Did I tell you that I was interfacing... In a customer service exchange shortly before I started recording, but it was a it was an instant message exchange where I was on my computer online typing back and forth with a customer service representative from AT and T. His name was Perry, and uh, just you know to illustrate how depleted I am emotionally. I started to confess to Perry, sitting there uh, typing. I expressed my feelings. (laughs) I expressed them to Perry. Told him how tired I was. He was, uh, he received, he received the, the expression of my feelings warmly. Told me that he understood. That made me feel good. 
Please remember that Elizabeth Bishop died of a cerebral aneurysm and that Newt Hampson was told at age 25 that he had three months to live due to rampant tuberculosis and that he died at the age of 93. That's all for now. Thanks to Cynthia Dupree Sweeney. Go get her novel, her debut. It's called The Nest, New York Times bestseller. Thanks to Echo Books for publishing it. It really was nice of uh, Perry letting me vent like that. Perry. My, my bus driver in junior high, uh, his name was Perry. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll be back again next week. I will deliver another episode. I should say, too, that uh, because of the move, just happening uh, later this month, things could get... I don't know what's going to happen. i got to figure out where I'm going to record. i gotta fi- I got to reset. i got to set up my equipment. I don't know what's going to happen. So just bear with me. Okay? <laughs>